Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. An enslaved black man named Nathan Nearest Green taught Jack Daniel how to make whiskey. It's a simple fact, and it's not a hidden one. It's on the whiskey brand's official website. But it's a fact I didn't know. And, you know, I've had my fair share of Jack Daniels. And this is sort of the point today's author, Omikongo Dibinga, is making with his book, Lies About Black People. There are all these stereotypes and hidden truths about black people in this country that it's a nearly impossible endeavor to undo all of them. There's actually a really funny moment in this interview with Hiranaz Deepa Fernandez where Dibinga says he originally wrote this book for, you know, white suburbanites with their Black Lives Matter signs hanging on their walls and all that but it actually ended up being for other black people. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. We Were the Lucky Ones is the true story of one Jewish family's struggle to survive and reunite after being separated at the start of World War II. The series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including Outstanding Limited Series and Outstanding Lead Actress and Actor in a Limited Series for Joey King and Logan Lerman. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. How do you combat racist stereotypes? Omekongo Dibinga has been doing it for over 30 years as a diversity and inclusion expert, as well as a lecturer at American University. Now he's published a book pushing us all to examine our own deeply held beliefs and whether they're grounded in fact. Omekongo Dibinga's book is called Lies About Black People, and he joins me now to talk about it. Omekongo, welcome. Thank you for having me, Deepa. Let's start with the title of your book, because your book is really a catalogue of all the ways in which society paints black people as less than or, or bad or even deviant. And I think, sadly, we know these as stereotypes. And just let me throw out a few here. Lazy, less intelligent, negligent parents, thugs, dangerous. And you point out that these are more than stereotypes. You call them lies. Explain that. You can't dehumanize, defame, or even kill a people unless you actually create a narrative about them. And you can see that all throughout history, the Holocaust, Armenian genocide, Rwanda genocide. And that also translates here into the United States, where in order to justify what we have done to Black people in this country, starting with slavery and then moving forward, we had to create lies about them in every aspect of our society that looked at them as unhuman and therefore deserving of the treatment that we have received. Mm. You know, and I, I want to go into some of the very specific lies and have you unpack them for us, because as you point out, these lies have really devastating consequences for Black peoples and Black communities. So I want to start with one, the idea of the welfare queen and Black reliance on welfare 
tell us the story, the full story of the woman who was labelled the welfare queen and then just the bigger consequences of the lies that are told in general about black reliance on welfare. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, that led to the story, you know, of Linda Taylor, who was a a mixed race woman who was accused of milking the welfare system for uh, a few thousand dollars. But when the stories got told by people like Ronald Reagan when he was running for president, you know, he talked about this woman who built the welfare system of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so she was the woman who got dubbed the welfare queen. And that has been a narrative that has been continuing in our society today. But what people don't realize is that when we talk about this system of welfare, one of the things I do in the chapter is I connect how this country has always had systems of welfare for white people in some way, shape, or form. Even Dr. King talked about how Europeans would come to the United States and get plots of land. There have always been set-asides. And on top of that, you know, Dr. King said in America, we have capitalism for the poor and socialism for the rich, where the welfare system was actually built more by wealthier white people, which we also saw recently, Deepa, during the COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. where people like Jared Kushner and Kayleigh McEnany, Tom Brady, all of these rich people, People built that system that was designed to help poorer people. So we have a continual system of welfare in this country that has been exploited more by the rich than the actual poor. Mm. But that narrative has not worked as relates to black people. They flipped it. And another example that you give is education. Black students, here goes the myth or the lie. Black students are just not as smart as white or Asian kids. Look at test scores for proof, is what is said. Tell me what's untrue about that and the consequence of those lies. Well, one of the challenges is that people don't look at the conditions that create the school systems that we're in. I do my work as a diversity expert and facilitator in charter, public, and private schools as well as in corporations. But in these schools, you could look at areas of discipline and you can remove race from the names on the bar graphs and you can go across the country. Black students are always at the bottom. You can go to rates of people who have access to higher honors classes and APs. White and Asian students are at the top. It's not that we have an education gap. We have a teaching gap where students are coming into the classroom and they are meeting the low expectations that are already set by the teachers and the administrators. We live in a society where we fund our schools by our zip codes. So if my daughter is going into a school in an area like Southeast DC, where it's the most underserved and the average income is $20,000 a year, they get less resources than the school in Northwest where the average income is $2 million a year. But here's the thing, Deepa, none of those students in either of those schools did anything to deserve a poorer school or a better school. And so we've set up a system where our Black students in poorer communities are getting an inferior educational system, and then they're expected to rise to the occasion at the same level of some of these Mm -hmm. other students in other communities, many of whom are paying, not only paying for private schools, but then paying thousands upon thousands of dollars for tutoring and other things. So people are set up this inequality at the starting gate that we need to address. It's not the people, it's the conditions. I want to throw in one more really quickly, Omikongo, because this one is a lie in some ways by omission. All the best inventions were by whites, as evidenced by the white-only inventors that we learn about in school. Tell us why that's untrue and the consequences of those lies. I am at a point in my life now where I'm going to think more quickly that things were invented by Black people as opposed to not. Because the fact of the matter is, when you look at things like the golf tee, the folding bed, when you look at the technology for uh, that was put into the cell phone, for the refrigerator, for the automatic dryer, so many different things, 
were actually invented by black people. But when you go back to the mid to late 1800s, black people could not file patents. And so you find that some of the things that were invented by people who were enslaved were actually claimed by white people, like the famous, you know, Jack Daniels whiskey brand that was taught to him by his enslaved individual. And now his descendants, uh, nearest green, they have their alcohol brand now. But basically what you have is that People in the white community have been able to make millions and millions of dollars off of stealing black inventions. And then on top of that, the other things that we have invented that we may have gotten credit for, but not much of the royalties or the notoriety or the fame, I should say, is that we grow up as black people looking around at things and don't realize that we played a part in it. And as Malcolm X said, once you feel as a people that you never did anything, you're going to feel like you can never do anything. And so there are real consequences in not knowing how much black people have contributed to this country, starting with slavery, but then moving well beyond that. And I found it really powerful just to build on this point that you're making, especially about inventions, whereby you started by saying it's at the point now where you picture a black person when you think about, wow, this is a great who invented this. I think part of what I got out of your book, Omikongo, is that we may think that we are not racist or we may think that we don't hold stereotypes. But just stop and think about who you picture in your head when you think, wow, who invented this? And I think you're really driving it in the book is that all of us have work to do. And and you call it an anti-racist journey. Tell me about that. When I was thinking about this book, I was originally thinking about it for white people in the suburbs who are very engaged in like Black Lives Matter and were kind of looking to take it to a deeper level. But when I went out to social media and started asking people about lies about Black people that they were told, I got just as many responses from Black people as well. What does that say to you? It says that, you know, cultural indoctrination is real. And so in the book, one of the things I have in there is I have interviews with other people. And it's called My Anti-Racist Journey, when I, it, where I interview so many people, not just activists, all types of backgrounds. Black, white, Asian, for people to tell us about their own journey and how they're getting better or how they're learning. And even on my website, liesaboutblackpeople.com, I'm inviting other readers to share their stories as well, because we can only win if we don't give in and do this together. But the lies are part of the process. They were not just randomly created. Omikongo, how do we stop the lies? Well, the last five chapters in the book are all devoted to solutions, solutions for individuals, for educators, for people in corporate spaces who are bosses. You know, I talk about the rule of seven, seven questions to ask yourself uh, to see if you're truly committed to diversity. And one of the things that I ask people to do, I have activities throughout the book where you can like kind of reflect on things. And I ask people to start the process of looking at the racist lies you were told about Black people where did you get them from? Because we're not responsible for how, what we learn, but we are responsible for unlearning once we get exposed to a different path. And that's how we start the process if we are truly committed. And there is a lot of stuff in the book to help you on that journey if this piques your interest. And maybe it doesn't, but maybe you should pick up the book anyway just to see where your beliefs are and what work you can do. You call them being upstanders. You also have your own poetry sprinkled throughout the book. I want to ask you to read from Let's Go Upstander. Absolutely. This is empowering people to take action and focus on the solutions. And it goes like this. If I want to change the world, I have to change myself. For change in the mind is true wealth. It's true health. 
My environment will never change until I change me, rearrange me. My thinking can never be the same. See, Gandhi went from lawyer to leader, changed his mind. King went from preacher to Nobel Peace Prize, changed his mind. In fine time, align your mind and align the world. Liberate girls, turn child soldiers into child scholars. If you just believe that you can take your mind, Father, but are you too comfortable to speak up on war? Are more of us shedding apathetic armor? I call for us all to do more. It starts now. See, we can change a TV, but we need to change we. It only takes a minute for you to change your life. It starts with you, but ends with the world. That's right. You change yourself, you change your home. Change your home, you change your block. Change your block, you change your hood for good, but don't stop. Change your hood, change your city, your state, your whole country. That's how women got free. Slaves to citizens, see? If it's meant to be, it's up to you. So do you. Unleash the power of one. It's all you need to do. Ome Congo Dabinga's book is Lies About Black People, How to Combat Racist Stereotypes and Why It Matters. Ome Congo, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate everything you do. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR.